hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 111. Thanks so much for joining me after the week off. Looks like we've got a pretty good crowd already. Um, I appreciate it, so glad you could be here. Uh, last week we were at the, um, uh, we called it a poetry day here in Wrightwood, where we took the uh, Wrightwood Art Center, turned that into a poetry venue for the day. We had readings, we had uh, two workshops, so it was really fun. And um, reminded me how nice it is to have like in you know live in person actual events. Um, I kind of forgot. Like I'm sort of a you know private homebody type person. It was great to get out though and see how much people love community. And um, it's it's really interesting um, that Debbie Kalaji happens to be the poet this week because she is really well known in this little circle we have in Southern California because she led the haiku hike um, every for the Wrightwood Literary Festivals that we had this time of year. And we sort of scaled it back for the, for COVID, but it was really fun to do. Um, Debbie would lead people through the woods uh, and talk about haiku. So I'm looking forward to sort of getting some of that, which I never got to do because I was always leading a workshop. Um, so she'll be the guest tonight, Debbie P. Kalaji, in just a moment. Uh, but first we're going to, well, first I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do, so make sure you click the like button. We've got, you know, seven likes over on YouTube and over 20 viewers, so make sure you do click the like button over there. Click it on uh, click it on Facebook, too. Click it on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter has a like button, right? Yeah. yeah, click it on Twitter, too. Click stuff to let the computers know that you like it because that's the only way things spread around the Internet. Now, today's uh, Poets Respond poem, we're going to start out with about 15 minutes talking about two poems. And the first poet we have here is Susan Doble Kaluza. And let's give Susan a call and uh, see how she is doing tonight. Her poem was uh, Last Text from Gabby Petito. But let's give Susan a call. Hey, Susan, you're live on the other. Shut off your stream so it's not uh, confusing with the delay. And then I'll pull you in. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Okay. Do you want me to turn it down? Yeah, turn that down in the background because otherwise it's confusing. I'm talking to two, you okay. know, you're talking to me at the, at the present and in the future. So. Okay. Yeah. Hey, that's that's really good. <laughs> yeah, I was just watching. I just wanted to jump on here and 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 watch you, but you, as you started here. So yeah, I'm glad you called because I've been overthinking this all day. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> How so? Yeah, what do, What do you mean about that? <laughs> What's that? What What do you mean overthinking? overthinking, just talking about the poem, reading the poem, you know, all that stuff, trying not to talk too fast and whatever else. So. Yeah, that's something I have to do, too. I try to, I, I speed talk, and I got to slow down a little bit for the show. Um, yeah. So so what, just, can you explain a little bit about what inspired you to write a poem about this topic? It's a poem that so many people are talking about. I actually hadn't looked into it too much until um, we got a bunch of you know, poems about it. And in the process, I read a lot of articles and, and watched the videos and things like that, just because I was curious after seeing a bunch of poems. And yours was a really touching, you know, it's a really moving example of um, what poetry can do in the face of, um, you know, events like this. So um, do you want to just talk about a little bit about why you were inspired to write this poem? Okay. Well, a lot of this I didn't put in the in the tagline, but, you know, I really didn't really get as inspired about it as when I looked at the police body scam hmm. um, and how I really zoned in on how um, Gabby was acting compared to her boyfriend, Brian. And I just seemed just uh, really very familiar. My daughter uh, had been in the same kind of relationship <laughs> about three years ago. Hmm. 
And um, it was an abusive, narcissistic relationship in which she was, uh, she lived through it, but she was strangled in a parking lot in Portland. Oh, oh wow. And it was, yes. Yeah. And she lived, she lived. Mm-hmm. But it, I saw the character, long story short, I saw, when I watched the body cam the, from the police in Utah, I saw the characteristics of Gabby who was very much like my daughter, emotionally exhausted, constantly emotionally exhausted, constantly crying. Um, and you notice she also tried to cover for him. She, she said she had problems, you know, she had mental problems, blah, blah, blah. But what I saw was she's really trying to cover him because that's exactly what my daughter did mm-hmm. for her boyfriend. And we knew first we thought he was a good guy and then it was just on and on, uh, emotional abuse and all kinds of stuff. And so when I listened to to Brian, when they when they interviewed him, he sounded like a guy who had just gotten off a ride at Disneyland, and you know they had just been you know stopped by cops. She was emotionally distraught, and he was like you know he like like he was just oh no big deal, and so I I saw this face of this person that was probably faking it to the people that <laughs> he was trying to impress, but in behind the scenes. And then I began to imagine them in this van going through all these places they went through, kind of in this little tiny space. And it um, just really, I thought, I wondered how much, you know, abusive behavior she had actually endured and what the breaking point was. And so really that was the beginning of, and I think it was, I noticed there was a comment about it being exploitative on your on your on the on your um, site under mm-hmm. the poem that could have been exploitative, but what this is was that I immediately had was like bonded with her, and it was because of the experience that I've had directly with a narcissist abusive behavior through my own daughter, which you know if you have children, what they go through, you go through. Okay, yeah. so then I continue. Mm-hmm. to watch the police, you know, the police um, tapings. And I started, I started thinking I need to let some of this go in a poem because it was very emotional, um, very emotional for me. And I went in to some of the other videos and the police and the FBI were talking about insects and how if they could figure out what kind of insects mm-hmm. were in the area, they could know you know, how long she'd been in an area and whatever. And it just, it just intrigued me. Uh, and I thought, and I'm an image person uh, for poems. I feel like when you put strong images in a poem, it's almost like your mind can go out mm-hmm. and they can imagine, you know, more or more lofty things. But if you tie things to the ground and you tie them to concrete images, it just makes it, and, and, and it will finally lead you to the story and to the feeling of what you're trying to express in the poem. And it actually just kind of fell out. And also, I am an avid camper. I live mm-hmm. in Montana, and I love camping. And we had been camping um, in some cabins in, I think, West Yellowstone, gosh, just about maybe four weeks before Gabby and Brian would have been there because mm-hmm. they went you know, all through the West there, Wyoming, Utah, Montana. And I had for a previous, um, uh, some, wrote some previous lines and I, I looked up some um, 
plants that were in the area in Montana because I, I, I wanted some strong uh, plant images and plant names. And so it turned out the way, and I don't know if these were exactly, of course, the ones where they found her because they don't know where she was killed exactly and she could have been drugged to the place she was. But the insects intrigued me. The plant life intrigued me. And I thought her being a, well, she wasn't a journalist, but she was a blogger. And she was so into detail. Mm -hmm. And I thought she would love these details. And she would talk about insects. And she would talk, of course, the insects. And this is kind of dark when, when she's talking about, or when I talk about it. But the plant life and all that, she would pay attention to. And one of her blogs actually talked about little fat chipmunks, hmm. you know. And I know that that sounds silly, but that was something that she noticed. And so I did put that in the poem because I also noticed a fat chipmunk in our <laughs> campground. Hmm. And I, everything about their traveling and the places they saw in the West, which I love, it just intrigued me. And then tying it with my daughter. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get morbid about that. <laughs> no, no, it's it's okay. And I'm but, glad your daughter your daughter got out safe. That was the thing that I wanted to to mention was that, you know, watching the video. That the shocking thing to me, you know, I watched. I ended up after reading. I don't think it was a different poem who linked to the actual video, but I watched the whole hour long video. And I, I, if I was just a police officer, I couldn't tell that there that was an abusive situation. I would think that. You know, they got a young couple that got in a fight and she was upset because they'd gotten pulled over and she was nervous about like either of them being arrested or whatever. I wouldn't have occurred to me that it was that situation. So right. it's interesting to me that you could have um, like recognized that, um, you know. Oh, and I think it was my it was my experience yeah. mm -hmm. with um, knowing that my daughter was one day she'd be high as a kite, <laughs> you know, like so excited about this guy. And the next day she would be, I mean, literally just broken. Yeah, so and it's really is, yeah, it's really important to like know the warning signs for this kind of thing because just it's it's just horrific to think that like my daughter could have a boyfriend like that and I could, might have no idea, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard, Tim, mm -hmm. because we really love this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we, he, you know, we welcomed him into the family. We went on floating trips. We went fishing, and I think this is why also why it's emotional for parents mm -hmm. and for mothers especially. I shouldn't say that. It's emotional for dads, too. But I'm kind of the counselor in the family, so, mm -hmm. so everybody kind of tells me all their stuff from all angles. But it's hard because when you friend someone, now you think about this guy was befriended by both, I mean, by her family. Um, they, As far as I know, they liked him and thought he was a nice man. They were gonna, These two were going to get married, right? Mm -hmm. And so... To have that and then to think, and here's, a, here's another thing I think people don't realize about the story is that these are people that look like they were in love. This, of course, this is the social media kind of tricks us, you know, mm -hmm. Facebook, putting our best foot forward, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure, yeah. In love, it was kind of a love story. And all girls love this kind of love story. And then to have it end like this, you know, to have it end like this, um, is it's just shattering. I think it broke a lot of hearts, mm -hmm. and I, I I thought the poem might 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 reach those who were brokenhearted also because I know that I mean I mean I think it'd have to be really shallow not to have a broken heart over this. Yeah, yeah, for know? sure. And and it makes sense that you have a personal 
sort of connection to a similar situation because that, that you know that's how you get into the poem um, and and relate so you know well and have so much empathy. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read right. it? Right. Yes. Yes, okay. I will. Okay, I'll put it up on screen. You okay. go ahead and read your own copy. Okay, sounds good. Um, I um, the last text, of course, is is because her last text said she was in Yosemite and there was oh no, it said there was no service there. So we're just going to go ahead and read. No service here, but at least I'm free from the cage bars of my body. Remember what I blogged in observation of birds, chipmunks fattened on the scraps left in abandoned campsites, in the cold after the fires were snuffed out, and the stars, oh, these stars, how they're arranged without number, and how they disclaim the disappearances inferred of them, but instead declare the secrets upon which all secrets, all darkness preys. Insects I doodled on note cards and sent home already will testify of my whereabouts. Imagine the hows, the whens, the why, revealed in the character of the dragon's lie. I've lain looking up so long, the windswept grass retains the shape of my body. Moonlight is my spine. After the rain, the sky in some parallel agony soaked out of me some heavier silence I'd always felt in the earth and to it a kind of mooring far more real than the live honeysuckle and wild licorice I could almost smell. And the caddis, with their assorted thoraxes retract into clipped thumbnails and cut grass, their buds, my own body are to the pile of ants, a worthy and contrite fodder. What astonishing weight my own thoughts make at the moment, the unraveling of many ropes set to anchor, think tie-dyed everything, the clasping peppergrass and what lies in the green water under algae, what sloshes through the culverts mixed with sand and gravel. Please know I was not gunned down or knifed in half, but cast on a spit. I was spun clay on the wheel of a potter. He created the soul of me. He loved me, then kissed me. He hated me, then kissed me. He kissed me, then hit me. The ocean of him swept over me, a certain undocumented upwelling of all the places we'd been, cheap shotted and piecemealed out to sea. And even here I am riding in my mind that knows nothing, but to feel my heart leap out and breathe into me everything that had died in it before. Thanks so much, Susan. A beautiful, important poem. I'm so glad you could write that and share it with us. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Have a good night. I'll talk to you later. You too. Bye. Yeah, so that was uh, Susan Doble Calusa with Last Text from Gabby Petito. And we have another poem too, a Tuesday poem, an extra bonus feature. And um, let's call up that poet, uh, Celine Frost. Hey, Celine, you are live on the air. Just mute or shut off the stream that you're listening on so there's not two, two voices. Okay. Okay, good. Yes, thanks so much for joining me. Um, so, so where are you located? You're in Alabama? Uh, yes, yes, I'm currently in Alabama. Yeah, um, well, so do you want to talk a little bit about what this poem is about? People haven't got, had a chance to read it yet. It's Tuesday's poem. Um, so explain just your background and, and where this poem came from. Sure. Um, so I am a general surgeon um, that works uh, at a large medical center in Alabama, and I was recently recruited to take call uh, at a very rural hospital about two hours from any major city. 
And um, I got a call a couple of weeks ago, essentially, to drive out to this hospital um, to help out uh, with some procedures. And what I saw there really sort of brought home a lot of the stuff I'd sort of seen on the news, Mm -hmm. um, sort of regarding the COVID crisis and the pandemic crisis in um, the state where we live. Um, basically it was a, a one floor hospital, very small kind of way out there. Um, one of those highways that takes about 15 minutes between exits Mm -hmm. and, uh, there's a room in the back and there were just a lot (laughs) of, uh, patients that were laying there that were probably some of the sickest I'd ever seen, ventilated, prone, um, intubated Mm -hmm. and in multiple system organ failure. And I think what people don't realize is that when patients are that sick and in multiple system organ failure, there's a lot of different doctors that need to be involved. There needs to be cardiologists and pulmonologists and critical care doctors and surgeons. But unfortunately, um, this particular ICU was being run by one incredibly talented but very overwhelmed family medicine doctor. And he tried uh, to transfer each of these patients out about 10 times to 10 different area hospitals, and there are no beds available oh, for wow. hundreds of miles. Mm-hmm. So um, the closest consultants were people like me who were about two hours away. Um, So I think I was sort of horrified (laughs) by sort of the the way that the situation has really gotten out of our control. Um, And in addition to that, I was just really feeling um, incredibly sympathetic to the providers that are really trying to keep these uh, families, um, you know, these patients and these uh, patients' families like together. Um, part of the thing that also struck me was I think I felt very frustrated because of how much misinformation there is out there on the internet right now about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. 96% of uh, American physicians are vaccinated um, against COVID-19, but there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there and a lot of conspiracy theories and people that have lower literacy rates are significantly more vulnerable. And that's sort of the exact patient population that you see in these rural areas. Um, so I wrote this poem basically uh, about my experience. Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. And, and, you know, I have some friends who I've, you know, who are anti-vax, and I've tried so hard to get them, um, you know, on board. And it's, it, there's just this huge, you know, like backfire effect. Anytime you try to discuss it, it's it's so hard. Uh, but so, so important as you see it play out in, in small hospitals all over um, countries where, with low vaccination rates. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, the cost of it is people's lives, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. It's not, the stakes aren't low. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this poem is a Sistina. Um, and what what made you write in, in the Sistina form? So I'm actually a part, um, I just started taking uh, my one of my first poetry classes I've ever taken through like the Lark Song online writers workshops. Um, and there's a woman who teaches, um, Dr. Maria Nathos, um, who has a PhD from uh, University of Nebraska, who uh, is a fairly well-known poet and published in The New Yorker. And she has been leading this workshop class. And uh, I, the assignment for that week was a Sistina. Hmm. So I wrote it and I submitted it on a whim and uh, <laughs> you accepted it. Yeah, well, it's a great, it's a great about. example of the form. And the, the way the words carry through is echoes. I think it's because you have short lines and long lines that, that really work well together. And you play with it a lot, too. Um, but it's just a wonderful poem, you know, having, you know, poem, poetry as journalism. It's such a hard, you know, it's a thing that you don't get to see very often. And so seeing a report from the front lines and, and what you're thinking um, through a really excellent uh, you know, poetry form is really wonderful and rare. So I just love this poem. Thank you so much. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read it? I'd love to. Okay. Uh, so it starts off with a quote by Rumi. Where there is pain, the remedy follows. 
wherever the lowlands are, the water goes. If you want the water of mercy, make yourself low. And it's an excerpt from the Methanali. And the poem is called Midnight in the COVID ICU in Rural Alabama, Assistina. How do you spell daughter, she says, her shoulders sagging low over the consent form, her penmanship a treason. I can't write in cursive. My head cocks to the side. Do you understand, I ask? If I lay her flat to do this, she might die. Her eyes are a house with dark windows, stilts buckling under the threat of the waves. Her hand wavers, I think of my own daughter. Sound asleep, hot little hands hanging low, her dreams warm as sunlight. I'll have to strip naked before I come inside. Bleach the blood and sickness off my shoes before I come in the house. I wish it was a new feeling, watching this woman's little son kick the linoleum and put his thumb inside his mouth. I live in a divided house, kicking linoleum an island apart from the grief that falls like waves of fat black flies and maggot daughters swarming a carcass in the lowlands. Is Ma ever coming back to the house? I look over. The sickness seeps from her pores, fetid water from polluted waves. I don't know, I tell the daughter. Her sats are so low, the nurse says. I say I don't know, but by sunrise, she'll be wailing like a beast from the hillside. I walk in the room, bedside. She looks small. Her small dreams, a warm house for her kids to live in, the ventilator charts the waves of her breath. Her daughter makes herself low, her voice smaller than her son. I make myself low. I see then the ransom of my thoughts crimson, but needless, so needless. I push the side of the scalpel into her thigh. She's the victim of a house divided, the flags diminished, waving in surrender, wondering what will become of the mothers and daughters. I wave sleep aside and mop the floor of the ruined house. The sun hangs low. I drive home to my daughter. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that poem. That was uh, Midnight in the COVID ICU in rural Alabama uh, by Celine Frost. Thanks so much for sharing that, Celine, and, and, and joining us today. All right. Thank you so much. Yep. Good night. Bye. Okay, so now we're going to take a quick break and move on to our uh, main guest today, and of course, it's Debbie, Deborah P. Kalaji, and we're going to talk about Highway of Sleeping Towns and a whole bunch of other things. That'll be just in a moment. Let me uh, get her on the line, and I'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience as we get connected with Debbie. Um, Deborah P. Kalaji is the California Regional Coordinator of the Haiku Society of America and former moderator of the Southern California Haiku Study Group. The former president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association, Kalaji is also a member of the Haiku Poets of Northern California, the Yuki Takai Haiku Society, Haiku Canada, and British Haiku Society and the California State Poetry Society. She's the author of four chapbooks of poetry, and her first full-length book of haiku in Senru is Highway of Sleeping Towns from Shab to Press. Um, she's been published all over the place and does all sorts of haiku, including, like I was mentioning before, she led our haiku hikes at our Wrightwood Literary Festival all the time, which were just the po most popular thing we do, You know, we, the only thing that we did every year because it was just so good. Um, here she is, Debbie Kolaji. How are you doing, Debbie? I'm doing fine. It's so great to be with you this afternoon. 
Yeah, it's just so great to see. You. It's been a long time without with it COVID and not having festivals and, and everything that's going on. It's just really great to see your face. Yeah, and I miss those Brightwood um, festivals. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. People always, you know, they still talk about it. They still ask if we're still going to, you know, do them and things like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, people miss you. Um, so Highway of Sleeping Towns is the book. Do you want to read something from there to start with? I'll start with that. Um, I'll read a few of the poems from the beginning. Sure. Um, just the very beginning. White marble. I am small at the feet of Lincoln. Summer moonrise, the distance between sea stars shrinking. A bullfrog hits the lower register, weeping willow song. Floating purple, my daydreams follow the water hyacinth. Train station. The flutter of wings in a chandelier. Highway of sleeping towns, the Milky Way. An excellent series to set out with uh, from Highway of Sleeping Towns, which you can see on the screen here. And of course, you can find it at, at Debbie's website. Um, so, so Debbie, talk, tell me a little bit about why you were drawn to haiku in particular. That's always something that I'm, I, I just, I'm always interested in, but, but why haiku? Well, originally it started because I, I thought my poems were too wordy. And so I was trying to learn to be a little bit less wordy in my poetry. And so I started learning haiku. With, and then, you know, originally I had the wrong idea of what haiku was. I thought it was 575. And I didn't understand all the nuances of, you know, seasons and juxtaposition. And then I just fell in love with the form. And people ask me, well, why do you love the form so much? And I always tell them this story. Um, I was on a business trip in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and that's near Gettysburg. And someone said, oh, why don't you go by Gettysburg? And I, you know, I don't know what I thought Gettysburg was, but I didn't realize it was miles and miles of battlefield. And so I drove there after work and I was walking along and feeling, you know, the sadness and, and thinking about all the soldiers beneath my feet. And suddenly this haiku by Basho popped into my head, you know, summer grasses, all that remains of a warrior's dreams. And I just stood there in the summer grasses of Lancaster, you know, or Gettysburg, and I just cried. I felt like it was time travel. I felt like mm. I was in that same moment as Basho. And somehow I felt what he felt when he wrote, walked on a battlefield. And, and, and so um, that's why I love haiku so much is the way you feel this connection, how a haiku can trigger a memory or, or a memory can trigger a haiku or a haiku you read, it's back in your brain somewhere, and then you do something like go to Gettysburg and you think of Basho. So that's why I love haiku so much. Yeah, that's just a great story. You know, because you know, haiku, what it does is it sort of distills everything that poetry does into one tiny unit, which is that connection to another voice and another perspective over time. 
Um, and, 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 and the way metaphor creates meaning and, and things like that are all, all present in the haiku. And, um, and I just love that story about, about that wonderful haiku by, uh, ba- it was Basho, Basho, right? You said? Basho, yeah. Yeah. That, that's just, a, just one of the great ones. And, um, I don't know. Do you remember when you first encountered like really great haiku, like that transition from not realizing, you know, for thinking the five, seven, five type thing that's taught in school to, to how haiku really works? It was in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's um, in the late 1990s. Um, I started becoming more interested in haiku and I strangely entered it from um, a science fiction standpoint is oh, some really? of my friends were writing sci-fi coup. So I started dabbling with sci-fi coup and one of the members on the list said, Oh, you know, um, we have this group that meets in Long Beach, California. You want to come and join us. It's a haiku study group. And I had kids that were still at school and it wasn't really convenient for me. So it was early 2000s before I could start going. And I met Jerry Ball, who was um, leading the group at the time. And I just realized that everything I knew about haiku, I just didn't have a complete picture of it. And I just fell in love with it. And we met in a bookstore. So I started buying haiku books, you know, what I could find. And so I, I bought, um, um, you know, the essential haiku by Robert Haas, you know, translations of Basho and Busan and Isa. I bought the haiku anthology by Cor van der Heuvel. And I found in that bookstore um, an early Red Moon anthology. Um, and then from the Red Moon anthology, I started looking in the back on all these different journals. And from then, I just I just kept reading and reading and reading. And the more I read, the more I fell in love with haiku. And then the more I started writing it. And then I got to the point somewhere in those early 2000s where I almost very rarely wrote a longer poem. It was almost all, always haiku or a haiku sequence or a high boon or some sort of haiku derivation. Because I really loved, you know, this idea of, distillation being in the moment and I found myself recognizing moments like I'd walk around you know I go at that time I was working for a cabinet company as the IT um, database um, administrator and I would go walk from the parking lot and go in and and around the time I started writing haiku I suddenly noticed that there were black neck stilts in this sort of like little riverbed that kind of went through the outside of the, where the parking lot was. And then I started noticing things like I'd be stuck in traffic on the freeway and I'd see migrating geese. And, and somehow haiku also heightened my observation and also made me appreciate my world more moment by moment. Yeah, yeah, that's really well put. I mean, and that's what what poetry does too. It makes you think about your life in that way, and and pay more attention and notice things. And and it, it's really it's it enriching in so many ways. And, and that's another thing that haiku distills is is by letting you write very very small poems that let you live in the moment and capture you know that essence of what's going on. Um, the other thing that I love is the community. And uh, and there's so many literary magazines that that focus on haiku. There's so many groups, and and you know if if you're curious. Um, you know, everybody can look in the, the show notes and see all the places that Debbie's been published. But uh, 
but there's so many the heron's nest and modern haiku and go on the list goes on and on and on of places that just focus on on haiku including the, you know the frog pond the ones that that are, that are well known and, and lesser known ones there's just so much of a haiku community and then the the haiku foundation has its conference um there's just so much sort of connectivity going on. Was that the case when you first discovered it in the 80s, or is that built up gradually over time? What was the sort of, how did it become its own world like it is now? Well, when I entered into this world in the 2000s, it was established, you know. Um, I started going to haiku conferences. Um, I I went to um, Asilomar, which is the Yuki Teke Haiku Society um, in San Jose. They have this annual retreat at Asilomar, which is just marvelous. And I started going there. Um, in 2009, I went to Haiku North America in Ottawa. Um, and, um, and, and, and so that I started attending Haiku North America conferences. I ended up hosting one on the Queen Mary with Naya. And, and then I ended up being on the board of directors for Haiku North America. Um, and we have, this year, it was supposed to be in Victoria, British Columbia, but because of COVID, it's going to be a virtual event and people can still register by August 1st. It's free to go and it'll be really a wonderful virtual conference. So, but, but you get to meet people all over the world. And yet I also meet a lot of people in my local community as well. I mean, we have a a thriving haiku community locally and, um, I think part of it is haiku is kind of a communal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a poet in Northern California, well, he now lives in Washington, um, who told me once that he literally only wrote haiku when he went to haiku conferences. That somehow being around other haiku poetry, poets and talking haiku inspired him to write haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this communal aspect of haiku and also the fact you have to kind of let go of what you've written because sometimes I'll write something and people see things that I didn't know. You know, like for example, I wrote this poem um, for my father. He was um, um, on an oxygen tube the last six months of his life. And so it's his oxygen tube stretches the length of the house winter seclusion and and my dad would you know walk around the house and he put his walk his um tube up and down so my mother wouldn't trip on it and um patricia Walkmiller wrote an essay for frog pond and used this haiku in her essay and she talked about the fact that it was a 575 haiku well, the funny thing about it is when I wrote it, I didn't realize it was 575 until sometime afterwards someone told me, oh, that's 575. Well, it just happens to be because I'm using things like oxygen tube and winter seclusion. They're just long phrases. And it, but it just fell naturally in that form. And so in her essay, she talks about how the limitations of the form kind of emphasize the limitations of the patient on the oxygen mm-hmm. tube. And which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. I wish I would have thought of it, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what's really kind of fun is to see how people interpret your haiku. Do you want do you want to explain a little bit about that just for people who aren't used to haiku? I mean, I've, we've been through this several times with other haiku poets that we've had on, but but the whole five seven five thing and how that's not what haiku is really about. 
um, at least in English. Um, can you just explain to that that to people who are you know who, who think of haiku as a seventeen syllable five seven five poem with a nature piece in it? Um, so so what is what is haiku really, if not that? Well, it it's really captures a moment in time, is what it does. I mean, the whole five seven five thing is traditional Japanese haiku always had five seven five honor sounds a japanese sound is shorter than a um a syllable so the word haiku itself would be three sound symbols in japanese but strangely enough if you were talking to a haiku poet from pokyo they may not they may just say haiku like I, I would, you know, hike, you know, and it, it, and so, you know, counting syllables in English tends to get longer than that one breath that it really is. If you ever heard a haiku read aloud in Japanese, it's much shorter, hmm. and so the words just are longer, and they also count the punctuation in a sense, you know, the symbols for the punctuation. So, um. What really makes the haiku is in traditional haiku, you've got the kigo, the season word, you have a karajia, kind of a cut, and then you have a juxtaposition of the two halves of the haiku. Um, and it's just something that's, you know, and there's, of course, variations because um, part of what happens is we get stuck in thinking only about what the Japanese masters wrote. But that's kind of like saying all Western poetry is the way Shakespeare wrote poetry. So Shakespeare lived around the same time Basho did, right? You know, I mean, you, you need to look at, you know, well, what were our contemporary haiku poets writing? And and some of them don't. Some of them write 575 in Japanese. Some of them do not. Some of them use Kigo, establish Kigo in their haiku. Some of them not so much. So there's some variations. So... Um, basically for me, it, it captures a moment of time. It's in the present. It usually has a juxtaposition. It, you know, the best ones have layers that you could sit with and let simmer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people sometimes feel that haiku has to be, you know, what you've experienced, but then, you know, I like to write sci-fi haiku, and, you know, and that's like, you know, a totally different realm. But yet some of those really have to do with my life. You know, like I, in my, I have a book of, of, of sci-fi coup. It's, it's a free download um, at Title IX Press called Tug of a Black Hole. And I'll just read a few from there. Okay, let me know where you're, what, where you're starting from so I can show them. Okay. What, what page are you going to be on? Um, I'm actually just going to read maybe four from the beginning and the two at the end. Okay, sounds good. I have it up, so go ahead. Okay. The tug of a black hole, this isolation. Rocket launch, where the vast blue turns dark. Time travel therapy. A time before this cancer. 
shelter in place. The days when I feel like an astronaut. And then at the end of the book, the last whisper from her spacesuit, Lost Moon. Face masks, my laptop in safe mode. And, and so, you know, a lot of it is science fiction-ish, but yet a lot of it could be written about, you know, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, that feels very, very personal, um, those poems. Um, do you, the, talk a little bit about this um, idea of making a book. And this is Title IX Press. I'm sure people can find it at your website, right? The, the link to the PDF. Because I didn't include in the show notes, but there's a link to your website. Um, so, so what what was it like publishing a, a PDF book that's free online? It was a little weird, but I I kind of felt because a lot of these were poems I wrote during the pandemic, and um, and I felt that I just wanted to give something. It was like a gift to the community, right? Mm-hmm. And also kind of because science fiction haiku is not as widely, like, where would you publish it? You know, there's not as many. A lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy presses don't really understand haiku. Um, a lot of haiku presses maybe are going to be less inclined to publish science fiction haiku, mm-hmm. although Lori um, and Title IX were really, because they like to, to talk with underrepresented voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of worked for me. And I think it was, it was sort of a fun exercise. I mean, the next book, I think, is going to be a book again. But um, but I did enjoy having it. It's kind of fun to show people because, you know, a lot of friends, um, it was all kind of immediate. Like my, once it was online, I got kind of immediate feedback from it, which was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's sort of a, you know, a subgenre of a subgenre in a in a subgenre form or something. So it, it's really it's really cool to see a book come out that way. And and you know, there's just there's different ways you can publish things. Um, so so there's this whole um, you know science fiction poetry circle too, which is maybe a good segue into that. What is it that draws you to that? And and why do you think it's not? Why do you think it is seen as more of a subgenre um, as opposed to you know having a lot of attention? Um, I don't know. I've always liked science. Um, I grew up and I like science fiction. I, I tend to, and I like fantasy. Um, you know, I was in your tribute to speculative poetry with, um, a haiku sequence. Um, and maybe I'll just read that first yeah, and then yeah, I'll kind I'll, of I'll get it up on the screen too from, this is from Rattle's website. Um, Basho after Cinderella. Go, go ahead. Okay. One. A glass slipper in the middle of the road. Spring rain. Two. Thistles in bloom. Village gossip after the ball. Three. Pumpkin vine. A mouse remembers how to neigh. Four. Fairy dust snow. Perfectly sized boots for her bare feet. And that was Basho after Cinderella from Rattle number 38. If anyone wants to check that out, that was a fun issue to do. 
um, with speculative poetry all over the place. We had, you know, all sorts of poems about aliens and, and poems about, you know, fairy tales and all sorts of things. That was really fun uh, yeah. issue to yeah, do. I, yeah, I had at that point in, in my life, I wrote several um, Basho fantasy sequences. I had Basho after Cinderella. I had Basho on the back road to Camelot. I had Basho <laughs> climbs Mount Olympus, you know, <laughs> Basho discovers the gingerbread house. So it was fun, you know. Um, and so I think part of it is that I find the science fiction and fantasy thing fun. And then I also like um, science. And, and, you know, um, you know, and sometimes I'll put them together in like the sequences like I did with Basho after Cinderella. But sometimes it's fun to work with another poet interactively in a renge. And I wanted to talk about renge a little bit, but I do have one of the two renge I wanted to talk about, um, perseverance, really kind of comes out of that whole thing because my love of anything to do with outer space. Hmm. Um, I've always enjoyed, you know, watching Star Trek, but I also enjoyed reading about NASA missions to, you know, Titan or, you know, um, always been fascinated by Mars. Um, I've written a lot of poems about Mars in my life. Um, and so this particular Renge, and, and Renge goes back to what we were talking about with the community thing, is that, you know, you, you write with a different partner and you have two voices. And, and so I know I was gonna, would ask you to read this with me. I wrote this one with Billy D. Um, of um, San Miguel, New Mexico, and um, it it won third pl it won third place in the Haiku Society of America Renge Awards this year. Perseverance, and I'm going to read um, my verses, and and then you'll read Billy's. Okay. Got it ready? Yep, I got it ready. Sounds good. Okay. Backyard bird call. Perseverance lands on Mars. Blast of solar wind, the dank of withered reeds. Venetian clouds, a biplane circles the sky above me. The half-moon beta, sipping air, Europa's hidden seas. Cardinals at the feeder, snowfall on Pluto. Kepler's star. The iron in my blood, blood red. Yeah, very nice. Do you want to explain like what a renge is, um, and, and how you know how that functions? You know, obviously, it goes back and forth. Um, what are the rules, and how is that different from a renga, which is the the thing that's sort of spin off on? I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, renga or renku is Japanese linked first, and haiku evolved from renku because the hoku, the first verse of a renku, is they started doing them as standalones hmm. and they became haiku. Um, Basho was a Rinku master and he would go around and, and, and um, go to different places and lead Rinku. And Rinku has a lot of rules. Um, and what happened in the late, I don't know, over 20 years ago, before my time, before I discovered haiku, so I'm not sure of the exact year, um, some 
Japanese poets from the International Renku Association came and made stops in various cities um, with haiku poets communities, and they led them in Renku. And the ones in Northern California, the, there was the HP and C Haiku Poets of Northern California and the Yukiteki Society, Haiku Society. And the, the people from Yukiteki understood Renku because their founders, Kiyoshi and Kyoko Tokotomi, had taught them how to do Renku. Um, the people of HP and C, not so much. And so the thing about Renku is there are a lot of rules. So and there's different links. There's, you know, case and Renku, which are 36 links. There might be 100 links. And so you start in a season. You have to be in the particular season. You evolve through the year. You you have to have a moon burst here, a, a blossom burst there. But then you have little weird linking back rules that, like, if you have a mammal in the Renku, you can't have another mammal. Unless it's a super long one, you can have another one later. So if you wrote a verse about an elephant. I can't write one about my dog because I've already got an elephant, you know? And so I think what happened is the poets who were there got frustrated because they liked the idea of playing off each other, but they just got frustrated with the rules that they didn't understand. Now, the way to get around that is you have a Rinku master who doesn't like tell people, oh, you can't have this because I can't have a a, a mammal, you just sort of have people write on slips of paper and you all drink lots of sake or lots of wine and, and then you then you pick the verse that, and then everybody goes to the next verse, right? And so that makes it fun. It's like a party game. Mm-hmm. But when he, but also a Rinku kind of meanders around and the most fun part about a Rinku is the building of the Rinku. Um, what you end up with is a very long journey of a poem. Whereas Renge kind of is short, it's only six links, um, and you can have it more thematic, you can link back. There's, there's really no rules to it, except for that there's three lines and then two lines. If there's two people writing it, three, two, three, and then just switch off so that each person writes one second line first. But when it comes to like a three-person Renku, then it might be three and two, three, two, and three and two. So, and, and, but it comes up and they usually have a theme. And I was going to read one more of my Renku um, that I wrote with Billy. This one won first place this year at the HPNC Renge contest. Um, and it's called Wildflower, Wildfire. And it really has two themes on it, which we can talk about after we read it. Okay. Mm-hmm. You have it ready? Yep. Smoky days. The air littered with remnants of our fight. Watching the house burn, I list my old lovers. Hillside flames. Echoes of angry voices. Just you and me, little dog. Wildfire. Sprinkles of rain on the dry chaparral. Suddenly, between lightning strikes, a double rainbow. Yeah. 
Yeah, very nice. Those are both of those are really wonderful. Um, how does it go about the composition of it? Do you do, do you do this over email, or do you like wait until you can get in one room together? Um, does, what is the length of time it takes? Is it like a like chess by mail, where you're doing like one move and then three weeks later you get the reply? How does it work? Well, it's funny. Um, it depends on your writing partner. It depends on where what you're doing at the time. Um, I've written them at conferences where you're actually physically with a person. I've actually went to a garden or something with another poet and written a Renge with them. Uh, but what I what did with Billy, especially during the pandemic, is we wrote back and forth. Um, she sent me a text message and then I would send her a response. And they just kind of, like some of them would happen over a matter of hours. And then we might spend a week or so editing it to try to make it, you know, smooth it out. But we always play off each other really well. And so it's really kind of fun because it's like a, uh, just like a prompt. Like sometimes, you know, Michael Dillon Welsh publishes, has a Naha Rymo site and different mm -hmm. people take turns prompting and they have a daily prompt. And so a prompt could be fun for writing haiku because then it makes your, loosens up your mind and you start thinking about that prompt. And I think a renge kind of does that too, because one person writes a verse and there's something in that verse, you know, that you think about that allows, that makes you write a second verse. And it's really um, very satisfying. So I've really enjoyed collaboration. And in fact, I did want to mention um, another form of collaboration I've been doing is that, and also because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, my friend in Tokyo, Mariko Kitakubo, who said she was going to turn in and watch this. Um, I think Billy is watching too. Um, Mariko and I met, oh, I don't know, maybe late 2000s at a Stillmar Haiku conference. And, and we've, um, we had a, a reading together in New York City. We had a reading together in Washington, D.C. Um, she's visited me here in Los Angeles. She's visited, you know, other, our, our friend, Caltabella Wilson here in, in Pasadena. Um, and I visited her in Tokyo. And she was supposed to come here in spring of 2020 for a Tonka reading because she's a Tonka poet. She's mm -hmm. not a haiku poet. And explain, and, the, explain the difference between that Tonka and haiku for people who just don't know. Um, tonka is a little longer. It's, it's um, in English, it's five lines instead of three. Although, you know, some people write one line of haiku, but that's a whole nother story. But in general, they're going to be like five lines. And, they tend to be a little bit more lyrical. Tonka means little song in mm -hmm. Japanese. And they actually, I think sometimes they're actually even sung there, but they are kind of like a little song. Um, and they tend to be a little bit like, where haiku is a little bit more objective, um, like you wouldn't usually specifically say your feelings, you would try to, evoke your feelings by the scene. And Tonka is a little more subjective. You could have something and you could say how you feel about it, you know? And so it's a little bit more, um, it's actually easier sometimes for, um, you know, narrative English language lyrical poets to learn Tonka rather than haiku because they don't understand 
the conciseness, the objectivity. You know, Basho said, you know, don't look at the branch, be the branch. And you try to be the branch, right as the branch, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Tonka is a little bit easier to grasp. So we started writing these sequences because she couldn't come for a visit and all travel was off and she couldn't come to her April um, reading here in L.A. Um, We started writing Tonka haiku sequences. Like I'd send her a haiku, she'd write a Tonka in response. Or she'd send me a Tonka and I'd write one in response. And then, and again, some of these were written in the matter of a day or, you know, two days because she's in a different time zone. So, you know, (laughs) you know, she might write a verse and go to bed and then I wake up early in the morning and I read it and she's still sleeping and then she wakes up and reads it, right? Um, But um, we've written about 16 of them now. Mm. And, um, and, and they're kind of different, but they also kind of have the short, long, short of a renge. But instead of having three and two lines, we have Tonka and we have Haiku and in her voice and mine. So um, I thought we'd read this one called Both Sides of the o- Ocean. Sure, yeah. And this was published in Kokako, which is a haiku journal out of New Zealand. Tea for both sides of the ocean, smiling moon. Sharing time under the big dipper, gentle roundness of the horizon. Was it only yesterday, cherry blossoms line a graveyard? Chatting on the terrace, our roses under my sun, under your moon. I look up through Bougainvillea. Skies we once traveled. Clouds come into my teacup and go out. Do they drift from mine to yours? Yeah, yeah, those are great too. That the, the the connection that you know it must have been a thing that sort of kept you everybody in the community going through the pandemic, right? That you could do you know, maintain these connections over a distance when you couldn't travel and see each other. It was a really great thing, I think. I, I imagine. Yeah, it, it's been really healing, I think, to be able to, and, and like that one kind of wrote itself too. It was like I was sitting in my patio um, with my dog and I get a little, you know, message, a Facebook message from her and she says, I'm having tea. And I said, oh, I was going to make tea too. And But it was like, you know, afternoon for me it was morning for her she was just getting up and so so it was like we were having tea together um except that she was you know tomorrow in the morning Mm -hmm. and I was in the afternoon here and and then we were talking about like she sent me a photo of her roses and I went out to my front yard and took sent her a photo of my roses and then suddenly I don't know I think you know I wrote a haiku and then she you know wrote a talk back and, and suddenly we had a sequence mm. and um that's how this one kind of came about and um but it's it, i think it's something that's been very healing from a poetic standpoint um and i i mean traveling for haiku was something that kind of a luxury because i used to work in a job where i had a lot of travel miles so if there was a haiku event somewhere i wanted to go to i'd go to it Mm-hmm. 
And in, in fact, that's how I ended up going to Japan in 2019. Well, actually, my, my daughter and her, her, her husband, it was the gift for them, actually, the trip, um, the airfare. But, but um, I wanted to go to a haiku conference in Tokyo. And then I started thinking about, you know, Matsuyama, which is where the haiku poet Shiki was born. And, and, and then, of course, once I got to Matsuyama, then suddenly, um, you know, I go into um, this hermitage where, where Santoka died. Mm-hmm. And I, I found myself, well, there were, I didn't realize how many haiku poets I actually knew in Japan mm-hmm. until I went there. Um, and it was really kind of fun because what we did is we flew to Tokyo and then we flew to Matsuyama. We finally landed in Matsuyama at nine o'clock at night. And, and as I'm going out, you know, to get my baggage, I hear a voice, Debbie-san, Debbie-san. And I look through the door and there's Makoto Nakaishi, who I'd met years before it at Haiku North America. I mean, he told me he was going to meet the plane. And I said, oh, you don't have to bother. And he's like, oh, no, no. And so he's there and he's taking us to the hotel. I get to the hotel and there's another poet. Her name is Yukari Wananabe. And, and Yukari and, and Makoto and I ended up going to a haiku bar. Um, and the bartender asked me to write a haiku. And I wrote um, um, together after the long journey spring moon and then she made me this drink of you know sakura flavored um sake with a, a ice cube that looked like a moon with a little flower in it and it was the coolest thing ever you know an hour after i actually was on my feet in japan i'm writing a haiku and getting a drink and sitting around with some haiku poets that i knew and with my daughter also and her husband and it was really wonderful um, and, and then we went to visit the Santoka place and I'm sitting there, there were members of the Santoka um, Haiku Association or whatever they're called, I don't know. Um, but essentially, Makoto and I and three other haiku poets and my daughter and her husband, and we're sitting around on the mat, you know, on pillows and the tatami, um, and they're serving us tea, and they asked me to write a haiku. And so, but they told me that where we were having tea, that that was the exact spot of where, you know, Santoka was sleeping and where he died. And so I wrote, tea with Santoka, a bird I don't know, calls outside. And it, it was just like such a, unforgettable experience you know both kind of going to places where haiku poets had lived before Mm -hmm. you know going to Matsuyama Castle and then reading a haiku by Shiki about Matsuyama Castle going to the Dogo Onsen and reading a haiku about Shiki about the Onsen about the hot spring um and, and kind of really walking in the steps where they walked that inspired some of this, these poems. And so it was almost like a haiku hermitage the whole trip, the whole 16 days I was there. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I should say, because I haven't yet, though, if anybody has any comments for, for Debbie, please leave them in the chat windows and I'll pass them along either on YouTube 
or um, Facebook. I'm watching both. So if you have any questions, just ask, and I will pass them along to Debbie. But yeah, I was going to say, like, it sounds like a pilgrimage to me. There's something very, it seems spiritual, and this, like, connection over time and, and the relationship that it has with your own life. W- would you call it, like, a spiritual practice? Like, is there something... I don't know, maybe like like Buddhist about it, like a sort of a meditation thing where it's it's like well, well, kind of, you know. I mean, I I you know, I I'm not actually a practicing Buddhist, but um, you know, I I I grew up Lutheran and and became Catholic, but but yet there's this spiritual connection with nature, um, and and it is sort of a meditative state. And it just keeps me centered because it seems like I, it makes, like I, I said earlier, it makes my, my life so much meaningful because it's like if I write a poem, it's like I'm capturing a snapshot in time. I mean, if I take a photograph, if I take a photograph, like I could have, you know, I did take a photograph of sitting in that Santoka, um, um, you know, hermitage. And I did take a photograph when I sat, you know, was at that haiku bar. But it's the poem that just bring back not just how it looked, but how I felt at that moment of time mm-hmm. when I was there. And, and like I said, it's like time travel. You know, it's time travel to my own life, um, time travel to others, um, and a connection to others, a connection to the earth. Um, the ability to look at small details mm-hmm. and not get focused in on big world problems, but more on, you know, the small joys of life and the small sorrows of life too. But, but it, it I don't know, there is something very meditative and spiritual about it. And I don't quite understand, you know, I, I don't like to go to the point where, you know, yeah, it's a religion and you have to write yeah. Zen haiku or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some people do write Zen haiku. Yeah. But for me, it's just haiku itself has been transformative, um, helps me find meaning in my life, um, helps me remember things I want to remember. It, it seems, too, that it's like sort of logging your life in the big book of literature or something. You know, that, well, you, know you talk about connecting to Basho at the very beginning. Um, with those warriors' dreams, and and when you write a haiku, um, if it you know it's one that lasts, you know it'll be here with somebody looking back at you a hundred years or two hundred years from now, maybe you know. So there's something that like part of a chain that goes on that's just really beautiful too. I think within the haiku sort of world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, there was one question I meant to ask, and uh, Sherry Grant asked to remind me. But was there a name for that haiku tanka sequence that you're doing? Oh, the one that I just wrote. Oh, the the name for the form. Yeah, the, the back there and is, forth. Yeah, is there, do you have a word for that? I don't have a. I've never coined a word for it. Uh-huh. I've just written it, like you know. <laughs> well, you should. Know, some <laughs> yeah, you should make it up. Now's your chance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have to talk to Mariko and see what she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I know that I know that. Um, um, under the Bosch show, the sequence editor Larry liked him a lot, and he was um, writing some. Um, and so I, I, I think there have been some people who have been experimenting with him as well. Um, 
but I do I do like it. I think it has something of the rhythm of a reggae, but a mm-hmm. little longer. Yeah, I thought um, there was. I mean, that was a really great a great sequence there. There was something about the pacing that worked really well. I thought I thought too. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that the you know you, how many of the haiku poets that you know in Japan, and um, and I always wonder. I'm always trying to get a grasp of like how poetry is is treated and thought of in other countries. And in and, and the interview with Richard Gilbert, I kind of asked about this, too, but I'm still not really clear um, in, in my own head, like, how it is. Like, like, like what could you compare it to? Like, like how is haiku thought of in Japan? Do you, do you have a sense of that? I, I really don't. Like, Richard probably has a better sense since he, he lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, now he teaches at a university, so he gets more in the students. I mean, I've heard different... I mean... I do know that um, the poets that I met there, you know, there were some poets I met on this trip. Um, um, for example, um, there's a poet in Northern California, Faye Ayagi. She used to be the president of the Haiku Society of America. She happened to be in Tokyo at the time that I was there. So um, Mariko and I met her at this Milky Way pub which was a hangout for haiku poets, actually, in Tokyo. Um, one of the owners or something was a, 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 on the, an officer of HIA, the Haiku International Association. Um, and so I went to this pub and I met all these haiku poets, some of which spoke English and some of which did not. Um, and, and then... There was a kukai going on upstairs. Now, a kukai is a Japanese workshop, which works a little differently because what happens is everybody submits a haiku, um, and then they're somehow made anonymous, and people vote on them. And the ones that get votes are acknowledged, and then there's usually the the haiku the sensei or whoever's leading the kukai who also selects the ones that she likes the best. And so while I was at this haiku, this pub, upstairs there was a kukai going on. And because I was going to be there and I was from Temple City, she told all these, these, and it was a woman's group, it was a group of, of women haiku poets, um, she told them all to write a haiku about Chimple because I live in Chimple City. And so, you know, and then later, Faye was scoring the kukai. She had this sheet of paper with vertical lines of, of, of each haiku. And, and she pointed out one to me and said, oh, I really like this. And she translated it, right? And so... Eventually, the women all came downstairs and I met them. Um, most of them didn't know English, and I, um, but I, I posed with them. So I have this photo of being about 15, you know, um, haiku poets that all wrote a haiku about a temple because I lived in Temple City, which really made me feel special. It just was kind of cool. Um, what that says, I don't know. All I know is that there's different groups in Japan. Um, um, I know that it's more commonly written with older women than mm-hmm. younger people. That, like, I think if you're over, there's some statistics that if you're over a certain age, 
it's like a very high percentage mm -hmm. of these women write haiku, um, not just like a percentage that would write poetry in yeah. the U.S., a, a mm -hmm. very, very high percentage. Um, but there's also different haiku schools because there is, you know, the Gendai Haiku Association, which is a lot more modern, you know, um, there's some that are more traditional. Um, so, and there's also other poetry going on. They have, you know, narrative poets. They don't all write, you know, they, they, they write English language, you know, they write in Japanese, you know, narrative poetry that they learned from us, just mm -hmm. like we learned haiku yeah. from them, you know? So, uh, there is a, there is poetry, um, I went to the poetry section in a bookstore, but I couldn't tell you much because I couldn't read most of the books there. Yeah. I did find one by Donald King that was um, a kind of a book about Japanese culture that I bought just to buy something from a Japanese bookstore, but it was in English, mm -hmm. but I couldn't read the covers. I, you know, I couldn't, yeah. I, I don't, unfortunately can't read Japanese. Uh, so I, I was, can't. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about was there, it seems like there are a lot of contests and competitions in haiku. It seems like that's sort of a part of it too. People are, there's different, you know, first place in this thing and every issue of the haiku, um, you know, like modern haiku, I think has like an award from the last one, or maybe it's frog pond that does that, but there seems like a lot of competition sort of thing. But the interesting thing is it always seems to me more good natured, maybe than other. Maybe just because I'm the editor and I do poetry competitions, but, but people seem very upset when they don't win. And, and like upset about the winners and things like that in a way that feels more healthy in the haiku community. But maybe that's just my imagination. Do you think there's like a healthier way to, to do contests and things like things like that? I, I don't know. I, I um, often forget to um, enter a contest because I'm deadline challenged. I tend to, I will enter the rattle prize because there's such a big prize money there. Um, I do occasionally enter Japanese ones like the green tea contest because you know, I think it would really be cool to get a, a, a package of green tea with my haiku on it from Japan. Mm -hmm. So I do tend to enter that one every year. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't know how to say that. I mean, sometimes I'll look at the winners of a particular haikus contest and I'll go, huh, I wonder why that one won. Because I think, you know, it's always the judge. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it can be subjective. I've also had to judge a contest a few times, which is, is challenging because I once um, judged the Vancouver Cherry Blossom contest. I was one of three judges. Um, and, you know, you had to read, like, you know, several thousand haiku and, and, you know, trying to widow down to the ones you like best. They were all about cherry blossoms, which is the, the thing that was hard about the cherry blossom mm -hmm. contest. I, I once judged the HSA haiku contest, and that was easier because there's a wider variety of, of topics. And so I wasn't reading, but it kind of fell down because, you know, sometimes people enter contests to don't really understand haiku they just see oh contest and mm -hmm. they enter it um so i was able to get you know my 1200 haiku winnowed down pretty quickly to about 50 which i winnowed down to about 20 yeah. you know and so you know but um 
I, I, I certainly never got a, you know, I was a judge. I didn't run the contest. So I certainly never got a letter that said, why didn't you pick my haiku? <laughs> yeah. um, um, so I don't know. But, but I mean, I think that contests are fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we have uh, two questions here, or a few questions, okay. actually. The first one is from Don Baird, who I, I'm sure you know. Don Baird. Yeah, I do know Don. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Don. He says, uh, he asks, why do people fight so hard for the incorrect 575 form? They seem to refuse to hear the truth about the misunderstandings of the form. So why, why do you think people are in love with that and can't let it go? I don't know. <laughs> I, some people get so caught up in it. Like, like usually when I teach a haiku workshop, most people are relieved that they don't have to worry about it. I always say if they want to do it, that's fine. You know, sometimes people like Billy Collins says, you know, he likes the discipline of it. But what's odd about him is like one of the poems of his you published was not 575. I think it was 557. <laughs> so, so as long as I guess it's okay, as long as it's 17 syllables, it doesn't have to be 575. I think that's what I he says. Know. I think he does 17 syllables is his thing. Yeah, so, you know, he wants to stick with the 17 syllables, you know. Um, there are other people who really, and, and poets I admire, that, and if that's their choice, that's fine. But I was at the the L.A., you know, book fair, the Festival of Books one year with the haiku poets, and some woman walked in, and she picked up one of our group anthologies, and she read through it, and she said... These aren't even 575. And I just looked at her knowing that that was going to be argument I didn't really want to have at the book fair. So I just smiled at her. But the guy I was talking to who was really into Zen in haiku and Zen Buddhist haiku, and he was looking for a book on Zen Buddhist haiku, and I actually had one. Um, he, he, strangely enough, be this Zen Buddhist guy who I don't even remember his name. He just went after her and started to explain to her why it didn't have to be 575. She got in a big heated argument. She finally stomped off and she said, well, I know what I'm talking about because I'm a published writer. And then <laughs> yeah. she stomped off. And I just like looked at her like, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, welcome to my world. I mean, literally every time we publish um, a haiku on Rattle, um, I get at least one or two emails. It's not even 575. What are you doing? And I just like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so uh, Mary Torregrosa asks if you have a favorite, you already mentioned the Basho poem um, that you love, but does, does um, she asks if you have a favorite poem you've memorized and hold close to your heart. Do you have another one, an example of one that's close to you? I have one. Um, I sometimes garble it, um, but I have one that I've always loved written by San Francisco poet Tom Tico, who died a few years ago. And it is um, Burial Service, One of the Black Umbrellas Breaks Down. Hmm. Yeah, And I've always, I've always loved that one because um, it reminds me of my aunt's funeral where it was raining very heavily. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And it was windy, too. So I, I, I just think of the sadness. I think of the umbrella breaking down. So I've always loved that one. Um, another one that I can think of, let me think about it. Um, 
uh, something about foghorn, I dip my paddle into the sound by Christopher Harold up there in, um, in Washington. He's in Port Townsend, Washington. And the reason I always loved that one is because I was literally on a ferry over Puget Sound when I read that because I was reading a book of his haiku at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I think it's just haiku that for some reason I connect with. Yeah. You know, but I but I have always, like I said, loved that Basha poem in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's one that my daughter loves. Um, it's her favorite poem that I also like. I forget the name of the poet who wrote it, um, but it was a an older, you know, it was a haiku poet from a few centuries ago. It was um, one umbrella, the person more in love gets wet. Oh, I like that. I never heard that before. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's in it's in um, um, Stephen Addis has Addis, I think it's Addis has a book called Haiku Humor, mm-hmm. and it's in that book. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Um, Sherry Grant asked about Jendai Haiku. She says Jendai Haiku is fun. How is the Jendai style in Japan different from the English definition of a Jendai Haiku? Um, again, that's more of a Richard Gilbert uh-huh. question. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there are people like Kaneko Chota, um, and, and part of it is that, you know, he has this one about fluorescent, some, he has one about bank clerks that are fluorescent as squid. And, and I don't remember exactly how it goes, but yeah. something about, you know, the bank clerks, bank clerks fluorescent as squid and you know it's it's really i think about writing about non-traditional subjects and 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 part of it you know shiki had two main disciples and one of them kind of became the father of this more traditional style of haiku but another one kind of played with it a little bit more so that's how you end up with santoka who was a disciple, a student of one of the students, of one of the students of Shiki or something like that. And, you know, Santoka sometimes is known as Japan's free verse poet, but he's certainly not the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think there's just a sort of, um, there's just different groups in Japan. I don't know how to compare it to English because I can't, I can only read translations. I can't read the original Japanese. So so that's kind of how I feel on that. Yeah, the website, I'm not sure if Richard was involved, Richard Gilbert was involved in putting this together, but jendaihaiku.com. If anyone wants to check this out, this is, um, um, I, I love this website. There's, there's um, a whole bunch of haiku, uh, poets are, are profiled here. And um, just to read one at random, um, Water of Spring as water wetted, water as is. And that was um, um, Hasegawa Kai. And they're just, all these homes, uh, to me they feel more, you know, a lot more surreal and experimental is how I characterize them, at least in the translations. Yeah, and some of them are, I know. Um, we once had a discussion at a Haiku North America about an Amy Tanaka poem, which is something like, um, um, gosh, Adam Hart Mother, in the prefab 
bathroom spots of blood. Hmm. And, you know, the thing is, if you knew that the, apparently the poet Amy Tanaka was born on the day that that album out of heart mother was released mm-hmm. and in japan they have these free prefab bathrooms which are uh, hard to describe really but i've seen them um and so it's not as weird as it sounds when you really analyze it from yeah. that perspective but it it just kind of comes across to what we think a haiku is is a little weird you know mm-hmm. adam hart mother you know, in the prefab bathroom, spots of blood, or however it went. Uh-huh. Um, and also, um, that kind of reminds me, talking about Gendai haiku, because there's this, um, I think Gendai haiku really just means modern haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the Modern Haiku Association, one of the founding members of it was um, this um, poet that I discovered in Japan, um, Hakyo Ishida, or depending, you know, Ishida Hakyo, because the family name is Ishida, and Haku is his first name. But but Hakyo, he he was born in Matsuyama. And so I kind of discovered all of these poets that were born in Matsuyama, and that's why I'm giving a presentation at the Haiku North America on the poets of Matsuyama. But he grew up in Matsuyama, um, ended up, being drafted into the army, got in the 40s, got sent to um, China, where he caught tuberculosis, and then he came back and was sick the rest of his life. But then he also was one of the founding members and wrote the articles of 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 for the organization, the Modern Haiku Association, the Jandai Haiku Association. But he was known for um, I can't even pronounce it something like Nengen. Tankyo Ha, which means the traces the struggles of human beings. So his haiku traced the struggles of human beings. And one of his haiku was piercing cold jazz, houses becoming in a row, which he wrote after the war and the American occupation and how Tokyo was changing after it was bombed out and being rebuilt. You know, all these houses being built in a in a row and the piercing cold jazz is sort of a reference mm-hmm. to um, the, you know, to America, actually, you know, uh, with jazz music. So so he kind of wrote things like that. And another one he wrote that I felt could have been written in this COVID time was when he was in the hospital because he was in and out of the hospital the rest of his life with lung problems. Um, woolly aphids circle the back gate where corpses depart. Hmm. You know, so. Um, So I think part of it is just we need to read more Japanese mm -hmm. translations. And one good place to do that is Feiyagi has a, a website called Blue Willow World, mm-hmm. and she has a daily translation of oh, really? a, a contemporary Japanese poet every every day. Yeah, that, that, that brings up something interesting about um, haiku that's a little different, too, is that maybe because it's so communal as a, as a type of writing, um, that, that 
the background and the situation of the the poet becomes much more on the front. Like you you should know details about the biography to get to understand some certain haiku. So this whole death of the author thing that we kind of have through the academy here is just gone, um, it, or just never arrived in in Japan. And, and it actually you know historical context matters in, in ways that maybe they don't always with a with a American poetry. Um. Let's see. I was going to ask, uh, I don't know, did, did is there anything else you wanted to read? I was going to ask you to finish off maybe with some, some more haiku from the book, or is there anything else? Like, I'm looking to see if there was something we missed or not. I can, I can read some more from Highway Sleeping Pounds. So I, I wanted to ask before you do um, about how the book is put together. Is haiku, um, you know, do you have multiple, you know, if you, if you flip through the pages, I'll put them on screen and just sort of flip through a little bit. But, um, you know, there, there are three on some pages. And there are one on other pages. And there ends up being this sort of not a lack of monotony or something. Like you don't know what to expect in a weird way. And, and how much space you have around the haiku seem to matter um, for maybe the pacing of it. I don't know. There's something about the variety of that that works really well. Um, how do you think about putting a haiku collection together? Like what did these have in common that, that makes them cohesive? And then about the order and layout. Like how do you think of that in terms of a book of haiku? Well, when I put together the book, it was really kind of a, a process because when I first started to put it together, I had this idea that I wanted groupings of haiku, right? That I would put all of my divorce haiku together and I would put all of my mother's illness and death haiku together and I would um, put all of my beach haiku together and you know, all of these different kinds of haiku that I've written. But when I put that, and I also had this idea that the haiku I wrote in the last five years was my better haiku. So I was selecting from that group. And so that I put together a manuscript of the number of haikus that Teresa Maychuk wanted. Um, and I looked at it and I went, oh, because I thought it, it read kind of boring. So, so then I went through this process where I took the manuscript, I, I printed it out, I cut it up, and I pasted them to index cards. And then I went back and, I, and I, we sorted them. You know, the kids came over and we sorted them in piles, like, you know, all of the morning fog haiku. I'd written quite a few morning fog haiku and didn't realize how many morning fog haiku I had. Figured I didn't need more than a couple of morning fog haiku. You know, hermit crabs. Well, probably only one hermit crab haiku. So I kind of went through, got all the beach stuff together, all the divorce stuff together, and kind of like science fiction, science-y poems together. Um, and then I sort of look at that and ended up pulling out what I thought were my best of my best that for some reason. And so I called those my anchor poems and I decided I wanted those one on the page because I kind of thought that a lot of times haiku books might have one on each page or they have two on each page. And I thought that was kind of boring. I kind of wanted this pace to be different, like maybe have a grouping of three, a grouping of two and a one. And so I started out with coming up with a sequence of the haiku that I wanted to stand alone for various reasons. Maybe they were too intense 
you know, like the one I, that was the poet's response when I wrote for the mass shooting, remember, mm-hmm. that was in Rattle, um, about um, potted poinsettia, you know, at the holiday party, bullets. And, and I did that from memory, so hopefully I got it right. <laughs> but the point is, that is sort of an intense poem, so you can't really put it on a page next to anything else. But then I have other ones like um, the, you know, Highway of Sleeping Towns poem, the white marble poem I started up with, I am small at the feet of income. I've got one about a dozen red roses. She examines the bruise in the mirror. So I kind of felt like some of those really needed to be on a page by themselves. And then what I did is once I had them, I kind of used my Renku experience, right? Mm-hmm. That I kind of linked to the poems in some weird way that I didn't even understand. It's just sort of like an emotion of feel that what felt good. So it became a journey, like on the highway of sleeping towns, this you know, journey on this highway of my life and visiting memories here and there instead of doing a chronological order or doing a subject matter, it, it's a order, it, it kind of became like a Rinku. And, you know, and some I put on two pages and some I just felt like the three worked together mm-hmm. as a page and I put them together on a page. And that's how I ended up doing it. And then, of course, once I start, got that basic, I went back and looked at all of my published poems. And I found some really early poems that were really good. You know, that there's this one I wrote. Oh, gosh, I don't remember where. When I wrote it, but um, lingerie drawer after the divorce, skippier. And... It was in a um, magazine, I mean, a, a newspaper. It was like in a newspaper um, where a, um, a go shiki go or something like was the name of the column or something. And that poem has actually been anthologized more than most of my poetry. Oh, and, and, and so I thought, because it ended up in a, uh, anthology of um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the anthology right now. Forgive me, um, but but it's the only haiku in the whole anthology. The rest of the poems in the in the book are regular, longer poems, and so it, it has to do with break relationships or breaking up or something like that. I don't remember the exact um, title of the haiku. I mean of the anthology, but. So then it's like, well, maybe I should include that one since people like it and it's been anthologized several times. And so then I started looking back at my other and then I started just ended up looking at my full range of haiku and taking out things where I was repetitive. Mm-hmm. So I ended up with a wider variety and most of, pretty much all of I think there was maybe one haiku in here that was maybe published, you know, posted on Facebook and not published, but they were pretty much all published Mm -hmm. um, work because I ended up having a full book of them. Um, But that's how I, that's how I, I put together the collection. It was kind of a fun thing to do. Um, You know, my next book may be different, but that's Mm -hmm. how, 
you know, I, I kind of like the idea of putting things out on index cards and reading through them and seeing how they read together and how they sound together, you know, and, and, and that's kind of, kind of what's the process of putting together that book. Yeah, well, it works really well. And I, you know, I read haiku journal sometimes and usually I just pick and, you know, move around and don't read in order and, and reading these in order really feels like a, a really good reading experience. It worked really well. Um, Thank do you. you. Do you want to read a few? I don't know what we're like starting a certain page and read a few maybe or. Yeah, I think I could just read some at the end maybe. Okay. Um, and what page are you going to be on? I'm just going to start with one. Oh, maybe. Um, maybe should be there. Okay. Maybe I'll read um, starting with a hundred page, a hundred. Okay. I'll start with a hundred and I'll read to the end. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Winter sea. The rise and fall and fall. What's left of us? Caves on Mars. A lily floats in a bowl of water. Bank balance. Blue damselfly on a blade of grass. The quiet before leaving. Whispers in the waiting room, mother's MRI. Taps, all we could say, now said. Silent cannon at Gettysburg, birdsong. Yeah, great, great way to end that that book. You know, coming back to the first poem. Um, uh, before we leave it, let me. I know I said we just end with that, but let me ask one more question because this this comes from uh, Soretta Martin, and I think it's okay. a good a good thing to end on because I think maybe people will be inspired to write their own haiku. But Soretta asks, uh, what daily habits are conductive to your writing haiku? Is there some way you think about it and, and engage in that in that process to to, to be a, you know aware and ready to receive thoughts and things like that? Um, well, I, I do various things on various days, you know, um, during the pandemic, I spent probably an hour every day in my patio looking at, you know, the, the, the watching the flowers grow <laughs> essentially and watching the birds and the hummingbird feeder and such like that. Um, now that, um, we could get out a little bit more. I've been going on walks at botanical gardens. Mm -hmm. So I tend to write. Um, sometimes I, I write on the spot. I'll sit down somewhere and write. Other times I'll just take my camera and take photos. And then I'll look at my photos of that I took and I write haiku based on those photos um, or inspired by those photos. Um, I always look at the prompts for Naha Rimo and I write them in my writing journal, um, which I don't have hand to show you, but, but I, if I feel like I need a prod, you know, to write, I'll go look at those prompts and, and just start writing, you know, and see where they lead me. Um, so 
so sometimes I'll deliberately sit down with a prompt and try to write something, or maybe there's an, a call for an anthology, you know, and there's a theme. Um, there's a podcast called Poetry P, mm-hmm. which is run by a woman named Patricia McGuire who lives in Switzerland. And she has a monthly podcast, but what she does is she'll have a theme or she'll have a technique. Mm-hmm. Like she she had one recently on Yugen, you know, using Yugen and haiku, which is, you know, this idea of kind of a, between the real and the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. you know. And so, so I, you know, I wrote some haiku kind of on, about churches and stained glass and, you know, um, and I kind of came up with some and she took a couple. Um, but it's sort of fun because I wrote a whole bunch of poems trying to, try to fit that theme, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there's another... Um, magazine that's visual called Frameless Sky, which is Chrissy Villa, Northern California does that. And she'll have an artist, sort of like what you do with your Frastics Challenge. She'll have an artist and she'll have a link on her website to maybe, you know, 20 to 30 art pieces by that artist. And then you're supposed to submit your Haiku Tonka or Sharita based on, you know, the, the number of that piece of art. And then what she does for her her journal is a YouTube channel or a CD where she'll have someone compose some music. She'll have the images from the artist and then the poems that she picked. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes she puts them together like a haiga Sometimes she'll put them, but that's always fun. You know, I always end up with some poems, whether or not Chrissy uses them or not, but I always end up with poems going through that exercise. So I do some of those things because I like challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes it's just I read something, you know, or, you know, something happens in the news. Like the whole Renge with Perseverance happened when Perseverance landed on Mars. I was all excited about that. I watched the landing. I had to watch the whole NASA, you know, you know, um, videos from there. Um, and, you know, and, and those end up inspired me to write things. So, yeah. So, um, I just sort of live my life and if something hits me, I always have a writing notebook. Like some people write on the computer. Some people write on their phone. I actually have a writing notebook and I literally write, I have it with me at all Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for haiku, that makes it easy because, you know, you can have a small notebook and um, right. and they, you right. know, it doesn't take up a lot of space. But that's just wonderful. Thanks so much for being a guest, Debbie. It's just great to have, have you on and, and talk to you about haiku and all the, all the things you're doing. Yeah, I've really enjoyed being here. And, um, and um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good night, Debbie. Thank you. Good Bye. night. Yes, that was Deborah P. Kalaji, and um, you can check out Debbie's book, of course, at DebraPKalaji.com. Um, for the people listening on the radio, Deborah is, is like you'd think, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-P, and then Kalaji is C-O-L-O-D-G, no, D-J-I, DebraPKalaji.com. And uh, this book, Highway of Sleeping Towns, is from um, Shabda Press. So um, we're going to take a quick break and then go to open lines. 
And um, it's been a while. It's been two weeks. So uh, we'll see what you have for the prompt this week. Um, the prompt this week was, um, you've been driving for hours on a long, empty stretch of highway. It's miles and miles of nothing but desert landscape. No rest stops, no gas stations. Just when you're starting to think you'll never see civilization again, a building comes into view. What is it? Write a poem about it. That was your prompt for this week. So um, share those poems, share news poems, just anything else you published recently would like to share. Um, let me show you how to do it. Uh, it's right up here. So email the poem first, like right now, to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. That way I'll have it and can show it on the screen as you read it later. And then you have pick one or the other, but not both. Just one if you'd like to be on Skype. Um, it's Rattle Poetry. Type that into the search bar. Say hello and wave to me. And then I will uh, call you when it's your turn. Um, on the regular phone, you can call me up at 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times and hang up. And that's how you get in the call list. And I will call you back within the next like 45 minutes or so. And it will be your turn to read. So stick by the phone if you do that. And uh, I'm going to go a quick break, get everything set up, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people who would like to share poems. We got Peter O'Donohue. We have um, Nivedita's here. Philip Stern, um, Carla Schwartz, uh, Richard Westheimer, Angela Gartner, Jerry Stevenson. So we'll call everybody up in just a little bit. We have some other poems that came in from Carolyn Codd. Um, Ted Guevara's got one. Carlton Johnson. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what we can get to. And um, so the prompt for this week, I didn't write one, but uh, Megan's got one for you based on her prompt. And uh, it is right here. This is close. And here we go. This is Megan's poem based on the prompt. Close. There are no doors and the pulpit is gone. Graffiti litters the pews. God is dead. Maybe once a choir of children sang songs here, songs about mercy and flames that burn forever, and the birds listened in the trees outside. Now they build their nests in these eaves, and cobwebs hang like tinsel. But if God lives anywhere, it might as well be here. So come in, kneel on the broken glass, and when the wind comes rushing in full of dust, it will sound a little like a hymn. Not exactly but close enough. That is Megan's poem, um, Close, from the prompt this week. And um, I'm just having a trouble, you know, I'm having a difficult week myself, or difficult few weeks. I haven't had a prompt poem in a while. I have starts to the poems every time, but things always come up. Uh, It's a busy time of the year for me. But uh, hopefully other people have some really good poems too. And let's call up uh, Jerry Stephenson first. I can't remember if, um... hey, he's on Skype, okay. Let's call up Jerry Steffens and see if we can get that to work. Hey, Jerry, I got you. I don't see it yet, but I might if you click the camera button or. Let's see. Here. Okay. How's that? No? What do I... uh, Give me something else to hit. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we got your voice, though. The voice is, is loud and clear, but I'm not getting any picture. I just see your face. Hang on. I'll try one more here. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Well, we can carry on carrying on, I guess. Son of a gun. 
We can, yeah, yeah. We if you want to try it sometime later, uh, let me know. We can test it out when we're off the air. But yeah, it's not working. It, sometimes what happens is um, Zoom, which is one of the reasons why I don't let you Zoom. Sometimes yeah. that like steals your camera, and then Skype can't access it because Zoom is still running, even though you don't know it's running, which is um, something that Zoom does. Um, but who knows? Um, but but All what right. do you have for us today, Jerry? Okay, I got one. It's called uh, Never World Next Exit. Ah, and this is the prompt, I assume, with an exit. It's sounds off, like off it. your prompt. Yeah, no, I, I threw a little Canadiana into it because <laughs> we've had a problem here with residential schools. Oh, of I don't course. know if you're aware of it, but this is near and dear to my heart. So I thought if you walked right into one of my slippery slopes on this one. So mm-hmm. if you're ready, I can read it to you. Yeah, go ahead. I have it up on screen right now. Okay. Neverworld, next exit. This road goes on forever, pushing or pulling the wind by direction of changes of heart. Due to consideration to begging to be on this trek, my guard should have been up, but my visor was down. There's no serpentine drive with twists and curves and bends like a tape measure that didn't retract. It's a yardstick instead, at least a buck 20 behind me now. No shirt, no shoes, no service. How apropos, long as there was gas, like church, why have the service? This is no crusade route. There isn't resolution, no redemption. No, there was crucifixion, more than three. No, no one was to help save the children. This road runs two ways, a trip to, veiled agreement, a release from, escape. For some of them, remain forever. That's how we find them. Another buck 20 on the odometer. I never see it coming. Then it's there. I don't want to look. Then I, I sort of see. I'm driving a bus of sorts. My passengers are survivors. Mourning parents, families, loved ones. This hopelessness, their destination. Built buildings to rise up over the prairies and deserts and life built to drive down will and culture residential schools yeah powerful poem and, and of course the the topic in case anybody doesn't know but the those um regis, reg, um residential schools for, for for first people children um there have been i think five thousand uh, remains of children found yes. something yeah. like that that number yeah. yeah yeah it's horrific yeah it really is um but thanks for writing and sharing that jerry Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Great show as always. I'm thinking in haiku now. <laughs> well, that's great. You're, you're better off for it. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> Take care, man. Thank Take care. you so much. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, yeah. So that was, uh, that was Jerry Stephenson with um, Never World, Never Exit. Okay, and now we're going to go to... So um, I have a first-time caller. Uh, Carolyn Codd is going to be on a little bit. I'm just telling you, Carolyn, that... Um, I should let you know, and anybody else who is new, um, when I call you, make sure you turn off your stream or mute it so that um, um, the delay doesn't confuse you. There's like a 30-second delay as like my video bounces out on the servers, back to other servers, down to Facebook or YouTube or Twitter where you're watching this. So it ends up being confusing if you can hear the show in the background. So um, when I call, hang up or, or X out of the video you're watching, then come back later. Um, that's how we do it. So let me go next to, um, let's see, uh, let's go to, um, 
Let's go to Richard Westheimer, who uh, we have some congratulations for him, too. But let's, um, here we go. Let's call up Richard. Hey, Richard, how you doing tonight? Hey, Tim Green. I'm doing great. Your voice is a little muffled. I'm not sure if that's just on my call or... Hmm. I'm not but... sure. Oh, you know what? Maybe. Let me check something before we... Let me get your video size right first. I, it might be that I'm using the wrong microphone on Skype. I know I'm using the right one for the actual stream, but maybe... Um, can you hear me well enough? I can hear you fine. Okay, I'll, I'll do it after you, like you call girl. so I don't accidentally yeah. hang up. But uh, okay. but congratulations, first of all, for... Uh, you know, being a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize, that was so cool to, um, you know, look at the poems and see that two of the poems in our top, like, 30 or whatever were yours. I mean, good job, Mr. Westheimer. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was a pretty interesting day. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of the way that you read the poems so that that can happen, you know, and... and um, I'm just so looking forward to seeing the other poems in, in the in the issue. And of course, I'll be pretty thrilled to see my name in print. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just wonderful poems. I, I really love both of the ones uh, that we picked out of the, the pile that they were yours. Um, and, and I had no idea they were yours either. It was really cool. I, you know, it was a fun thing to see, uh, which, which it often is. Like there's this sort of a private unveiling process because we do the meeting down in LA to pick the poems. And I drive two hours back to, the, <laughs> to my home office, you know, and then I go in the database and type in the little number at the top and see who each poem is. And mm -hmm. um, it's sort of a fun, like, oh, wow, look at that. And, oh, and, oh who's yeah. that? And then I, like, Google the person to see, you know, who it is. It's always fun. So it's sort mm -hmm. of a private, you know, I get back at, like, 10 p.m. at night or something after that meeting. And then all alone in my office, I'm looking up who everybody is. It's a lot of fun. But it was cool to see uh, you on there, Richard. So congratulations. Well, I, I really appreciate it. And w one of the things that I was thrilled with, is the poems are sort of polar opposite. One is deeply personal and the other is so conceptual. And the fact that Rattle can can handle <laughs> both of those is sort of amazing. Yeah, I did know that they were both the same poet because we have a, the same number. It's like that there's a number on the top of the poem because I don't want to have two finalists um, in the same top 10 because then they'll like cancel each other out for the reader's choice vote, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that happened one time and then I realized, wait a minute, I think it was... Um, um, Courtney Campa, who had two poems as finalists one year. And so she might have won if it was only one. So I have to balance that out. But anyway, um, mm. so so anyway, after all that, what do you have for us tonight, Richard? Um, so I have a little tiny Poets Respond poem and a prompt poem, if there's time mm. for both of them. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Is the Poets Respond poem something you submitted or did you email it to? Yeah, uh, something I submitted, The Unbearable um, Attraction of Flowing Lava. Okay, let me... Uh... We should actually probably stick it to one, actually, because it's it's pretty late. We went a okay, little long. I'll, on the show. I'll do the prompt poem just because yeah. that was more fun. Okay, which sure. I did email. Okay. Um, and this is the have... Ars Poetica or no? Yeah, the Ars Poetica. Okay, okay, I got it here. Ars Poetica, where poems are hiding. The sun sits overhead as it has since I've been on this road, which is for so long I forget where I'm headed or where I've been, or how long my hands have gripped this wheel, or even if it is a road, or just the route made by me and this vehicle moving into a future I make by heading there. Ahead and behind are the same, like I drive on the infinite spine of an infinite snake baked into an infinite expanse of heat-shimmer desert. 
I am first aware of a marker of time when dust rose like a shadow of stone, sudden like a seish on a windless day. I drive on blind, perhaps nod off, only awaken to see revealed to me a monument grown from the road, the color of bone. On it, I see an open door, and through that door pours a scene of leaves falling, calling me to leave this endless asphalt and searing sky behind, to walk through where I find a river of poems waiting to be written. Uh, great stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Ours Poetica, where poems are hiding. Thanks so much, Dick. Yeah, th thanks, Tim. Talk yeah. to you soon. Yep, talk to you later. Bye. That was Richard Westheimer with Ars Poetica, Where Poems Are Hiding. And now I'm going to try the first-time caller. This is Catherine Codd. It, it does surprise you, too, when I call. Let's see. Catherine, hello. Can you hear me? Hmm. I, I think I hear you clicking. Are you there? I heard a click. Hello. Hello, yeah, I hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, um, okay good. So uh so sure. where are you calling from? Um from uh, Redlands. Ah, okay, great. Right down the road from I, us. I can't find the button to um do the camera. The sound. Um on the microphone or I don't know. It it um let's see. It's yeah, no, I'm not clicking. Well, we have you. We have you clear. Um, if let's see. But I'm. I'm. It's doubling the sound. For me. Oh, is it? Hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't you just? Um, you can just tell us about the poem and then read it. How about that? Are you still there? Okay, I moved. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, I, I fixed my, my camera or microphone problem. Does that make it better? Well, I hear too. I hear it double. But is you... it is it because your stream's still going in the background? Oh, maybe. Watching? Yeah, oh. mute th mute that or turn that off. Yeah, oh, I don't okay. I don't hear it myself. But um, oh, yeah. okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I don't see any my me, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. So so you're on yeah. live on the air. So what did you want to share? This is a poem you mentioned that you you wanted to share it last week, but there was no show. So so what is it that yeah. you have to share with us? Well, it was it, it's um, in response to it's a anti-war poem, and it was in response to the news about the Afghan withdrawal and the terrible drone strike and oh, all of, of that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a poem that I wrote some time ago, but I updated every so often because because yeah. work is happening. Yeah, yeah, and there's so, always a way to update it, unfortunately. So all of that that was happening made me think of this poem, and I revised it a little bit, and I wanted to share it. Okay, well, why don't you go ahead and read it uh, whenever you're ready. Okay, do you have it? I do. I have it up on screen. You have to read your own copy, though. Yeah, okay. okay. All right. It's called War Cry. To, today again, I saw the Guernica. Last time, New York in the 60s, now here in Madrid. And still they agonize and scream. We protest and shout. They're mutilated. They cry. They die. We protest. We shout. Make love, not war. Stop the war. Learn from the past. Never again. Peace we want. 
Paz, we plead. Shalom, we pray. And they do talk peace, and some make peace. The peace is signed, and some do keep the peace. But the peace is in pieces, and in between, more war. Let there be peace, we pray. Peace on earth, we say. But about peace, what do we know? What we know about is war, all sorts of wars. Tribal wars, revolutionary wars, gang wars, civil wars, world wars, contained wars, play wars, practice wars. Kids watch war in their living rooms, play war in the streets, and now online. Then they're taught more about war, studying the names, the dates, and the places. Sometimes they even analyze the causes. About war, we gain more and more knowledge. Some ones become specialists in war, making and trading the newest weapons. Others study in a military college, preparing to do the latest in wars. Clean wars, dirty wars, high-tech push-button wars, fast wars, star wars, drone wars. But about peace, who has the knowledge? Could we teach peace instead of war? Or is peace too boring? Peace, path, shalom, we say. But about peace, we know very little. And still they agonize and scream. We protest and pray. They're mutilated. They cry. They die. And again we plead. No more war. Stop the war. And yet about war we learn more and more. But the most important part we've never learned. We don't know how. Will we ever know how to stop it? Yeah, great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Carolyn. That's uh, Carolyn Codd with uh, War Cry. And if, unfortunately, always timely. Hopefully there won't be a, a new reason for it to be updated again soon, but there, there probably will. Yeah. 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 Thanks for joining us, Carolyn. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. So that was Carolyn Codd. And um, yeah, I had the whole show. I had Skype was using the wrong microphone. So it was my, um, I don't know how, you know, Debbie and um, the first early guests heard me well enough but i guess i guess it was fine but it was using the microphone in my um in my document camera instead of the this the real one anyway let us go now to angela gartner then we'll go to nivedita let's see um yeah so let's go to angela gartner then we got nivedita then we have peter o'donohue if he's still awake um let's see i'll leave a little message for peter and um, who else? We have Carla Schwartz is still here, Philip Stern. So so we'll get through to some, some people here, too. Okay, but let's call up Angela Gardner right now. And I should say, oh, that was quick. Hi. Hey, Angela, you were so quick that I, um, I didn't, I was about to say, um, just to remind everybody from, from the decision I made while Richard was on, that we should have a one poem limit. So there's a one poem limit tonight. But what do you, what do you want to share for us tonight? I know. I'm like, what should I share now? <laughs> they, um, maybe I'll share my Poets Respond, if that's okay. And then next week I can share my prompt poem because I don't know if I'll, I'll have time to do the prompt poem <laughs> for the other week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, um, so what was this uh, news poem about this week? Um, this was about um, Gabby, but kind of from a reporter's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, when I worked in the newsroom, I'm still a reporter. I'm, I'm just like an editor now and I work for a magazine, but when I was in a daily newsroom, you know, while I 
covered education, we all had to cover different stuff. So, you know, on the weekends, you know, if you worked the weekends, you had to cover the police beat. If you anything that came in, you had to go. And then, you know, if they needed extra help, you would go. And then, and, and, you know, my editor would come and say, Hey, something quick and easy. (laughs) And I would cover whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. So from a reporter's perspective, you know, I, I was just thinking about some of the people that I covered, um, you know, an example of, of, you know, I've covered, um, a, 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 a man who was missing and I had to talk to his family, you know, after, well, before his remains were actually, um, identified. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I talked to his father. Um, and then, um, there was a woman who was killed, um, actually an explosion. And, um, you know, I talked to her, um, friends and, you know, family and church. And, you know, I was just thinking that, well, you know, the police are someone who obviously talks to the family, but, you know, we reporters, you know, we do have to, you know, make that connection with the family. And, you know, for us, I think, you know, you know, you see all the posts on, on Facebook and social media about her and how, you know, people think it's heartbreaking. And to me, I was just thinking about the reporters who had to cover um, this and then also how to connect with the family because we do carry that with us because mm-hmm. um, I still remember those stories and you know those were years and years ago yeah so. yeah of course yeah well let's hear this poem it's 1051 missing person is that the police yeah that's the police number right for a missing person yeah and each city has its own one and um so I I was always by the police scanner mm-hmm. like that was my desk so I would always hear the police scanner and this particular um you know, is not specifically about Gabby or someone I covered, but it was actually stem. It's inspired by an incident that happened here in my state recently about a woman who was missing. Hmm. So, yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. 1051 missing person. Static crackle click. At my desk in an empty newsroom, there was a woman who was found in the trunk. Static, crackle, click. Eighteen days of waiting, she made one worried call. If you don't hear from me, static, crackle, click. Talk to the police, confirmed. Her pastor says she was loved. The family is at her home. Static, crackle, click. An uncle answered the phone. What can I say to her mom? I hear her orphan children in the background. Static, crackle, click. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Angela. That was uh, 1051 missing person. Really interesting to hear the journalist's perspective. Um, I have a question for you, which is kind of personal a little bit um, to, to me. But, but here in the town, I'm just wondering if this is a normal thing that happens. Because something strange happened two weeks ago in our little town. There was a woman who was thrown according to a witness out of a car um, and she died um, and she was like already dead or something that the coroner came um, and there was a witness and there were other people that saw it in our town right on the police report it says it was a car accident but there were no cars and um, and the one news story says that there was a fatal car accident but people saw um, the person thrown out of the car 
and um and and then the car drove away and um so we no one knows any idea what happened and we're we're all very confused about it did the police ever like like not tell the story while the investigation's going on so that they don't ruin the investigation or something is that what it could be or what what do you make of that well, I mean, I if it's an ongoing investigation, they might not give information. When you mm-hmm. make the police calls, honestly, they're not very forthcoming. That's why we have the scanner. And yeah. sometimes you have to find things out on your own. Because, you know, when you make the police calls, they're like, you know, anything going on tonight? No. When you know maybe there was a barn fire that just happened. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes they don't want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, even the- with Gabby's... Mm-hmm. I was going to say that the family has think. a GoFundMe uh, and says it was murder, um, and they're they're you know trying to pay your funeral bills and stuff, and um, and the but the police just say it was an accident. So I, I I find the whole thing, I don't know. I've never seen anything like that happen before. Well, and it's it's the reporter's job if there was witnesses, and it just depends on what information the police. I mean, the one thing is sometimes it's hard, you know. I, you know, the poem that was written today for the rattle, mm-hmm. um, which was a wonderful poem, very imaginative. But as a reporter, I have a little hard time, you know, putting out information that, you know, we don't really know their situation yeah. too mm-hmm. much. So some of the, I'm like, ah, like we don't know all the specifics and even the fact that they're not. I mean, who knows? The aut- autopsy might be in, but they might not say because mm-hmm. they haven't found the guy yet. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they really don't want to give out the cause and that kind of thing because they still need to talk to him first. So mm-hmm. I, it's, I, I always like cringe a little bit, not just because, and I think that hinders my poetry a little bit for poets respond <laughs> because I don't want to be, you know, it's, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. That makes sense it's for hard. sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for that perspective, Angela. It's, it's really interesting. And thanks for sharing that poem. Okay, and thanks. And uh, Selena's poem was really good. And yeah, haiku. I didn't know it was such a market. I'm, I'm going to look. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Take yeah, care. Great. Have a good Thank night. You. Bye. You too. Bye. That was Angela Gartner with uh, 1051 Missing Person. And um, let's, yeah, he's still like, let's call up, um, let's call up Peter O'Donohue. It's like 3 a.m. there in uh, Ireland or something, but he's still awake. Peter, how you doing? Peter, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? I can. You're, you're live on the air. We have we don't have video yet, but we have audio. Um, okay. How do I get audio? Hang on now. Um, I'm clicking things. <laughs> well, we have your voice. Your, your voice is loud and clear. And if well, you want to click the, the camera icon, it's between the red hang-up button, and then there's a mute microphone button. There's a little camera should be. If you click that, you okay. should come in. But if you don't, we have your voice anyway, which is fine. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's a blessing to me. <laughs> okay. To be honest. So so what do you have that you wanted to share with us tonight? Oh, there you um, are. Hello, I, we see you now. Good. <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, uh, I God, I keep missing the prompts, and that was a brilliant prompt. And I have I have a lovely poem actually. Well, I think it's a lovely poem about that prompt, but I don't have it. <laughs> so I've. I'm just my latest poem kind of thing. And okay. uh, I'd like to read that. And uh, it's just I've been visiting um, a graveyard lately with my dog because we can get to it across fields and it's a lovely walk. Mm-hmm. But I've become a bit obsessed with it. <clears throat> so I do apologize. And uh, what did um, Charles Dickens say? He said, 
in a, what was it, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, it is the best of times or the worst of times. This is probably either the best of times or the worst of times to admit that I'm not a fan of haiku. <laughs> well, that's okay. Did, I do, I do apologise. Did you gain any appreciation during the show? A little bit, maybe? I, I enjoyed it because I always... <laughs> I, I just love rattle and everything, but I have to confess, and I think I'd be a fraud if I didn't confess. Yeah, no, that's all right. That's that all right. I, I am the president of PA, P A H, <laughs> Poets Against Haiku. That's, that's so funny. So I feel very, very conflicted, but I just <laughs> had to confess, mea culpa. <laughs> well, we always um, appreciate the honesty, Peter. Um, but I'll, I'll shut up and read my poem, will I, Timothy? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, it's called Do This Now. It's only words. They are only words, not sticks, not stones. Today, oh, sorry, also, I should explain, we have red kites here in uh, Wicklow in, in Ireland that are birds, large um, raptors. Uh, they fee feed on carrion. So I'm not talking about red kites like children's toys. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's a red kite is a bird. Sorry. Do this now. It's only words, they are only words, not sticks, not stones. Today I saw a large red kite perched on a tombstone in Kilbride Cemetery. How it took off because I arrived must mean something beyond the beauty of the flap and heft of wings and body. They took the Earl of Wicklow's coffin for the lead, the scrap value. Children used to play among the dead until they sealed the vault. The field abroad full of black upright beans, 70 acres or more. Me on my bike, my dog alongside, and a rabbit scurrying home. Skies as big as a dream above us. A murmuration not of starlings, but swifts or swallows. Fleet, delicate, precision. Another kite half a mile high, bothered by a persistent crow. Harrying, chasing, reminding, all messages I refuse to know, not yet, not now, later. Uh, excellent Thanks poem. very much, Timothy. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Peter. Thank you. Good night. Good night. That was Peter O'Donohue and with a Do This Now. And uh, love that ending there. Um, let's see. So um, yeah, yeah, wonderful picture of um, of that walk across the field with the kites. I loved it, and then the ending too, and the, the metaphor that it works. That, that was uh, Rod, uh, Peter O'Donohue, and that is PB Magazine that he runs out of Ireland. So it's cool to see him staying up late enough to catch the Rattlecast live. Thanks for that, Peter. And now let me see. Let's go to. Um, I think um, I'm gonna do a little run. Let's see. Let's call up um. Let's see, we got Nivedita, we got Philip Stern, we got Carla Schwartz, Joyce Stahl. I think, Joyce, since you just have a haiku, I'll read your haiku in a minute and not, not, not bother connecting because um, it's really short um, to do that. And let's, um, okay, so let me do, let's call Philip Stern and see if he's still here. Then we'll go to Carla Schwartz, then I'll read some poems, and that'll close out the night. I think that'll be good. Hello. Hey, Philip, you are live on the air. Just turn uh, turn that down in the background. Okay. Okay, so how are you doing tonight? 
Good, thank you. I uh, learned a lot today with that haiku stuff. I mean, uh, <laughs> all I knew about it before was the usual 575 yeah. and uh, the, Im- the imagist poets that copied it, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, that, that's great to hear. Um, I'm glad maybe you can yeah. write a little haiku yourself later. So, so what do you have to share with us tonight? Okay, um, it seems whenever I uh, lately, when I'm looking at the uh, poets re- poets respond poem, mm-hmm. I keep playing with uh, my wordplay poems. <laughs> yeah, they always, uh, you know, they seem to trend toward social commentary. So, at any rate, this relates to uh, two weeks ago. There was a headline: uh, Seven more U.S. Capitol riot defendants plead guilty. Mm-hmm. So that's the headline, and uh, this is my poem, The Guilty. Okay, go ahead. I have it up for everybody. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay. Every week in the nows, we learn that more and more of our fellow countrymen have pled guilty. Many have said they were just following a precedent. In fact, caught up in the mad groment, excitedly ignoranting after a fiery spurreach, what we saw was a stampede of mistaken assaults. Yet instigators and perpetuators go free. Oh, that was fun. Thanks for sharing that, Philip. I love the uh, ignoranting. That was my, my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks as always, Philip. All right. Thank you. Yep. Good okay. night. Good night. Yeah, that was uh, Philip Stern with The Guilty. And um, the word, one of the wordplay poems. Let's call it by Carla Schwartz. And then I'll just read a few. So, um, Carla Schwartz. Here she goes. Hey, hey Carla. How are you doing yeah. tonight? I am good. It's a great night. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here tonight. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you could so, join in. And, and what do you have to share? This is a poem. Um, it's published online at cape, um, capeandislands.org. Yeah, it's their radio station. From It's actually, it was published in 2019. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, when I, when I thought about the prompt, and I'm not living in a desert area, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the way Megan interpreted the prompt her own prompt. That was yeah, the best. But um, anyway, this, I thought, well, it sort of fits in. So um, it's called Forsythia Drive-By. And um, here it goes. Okay. As I turn the curve on a lonely road, just past the bridge over the river, a man in camo stands in the lane where I would drive, in his hands pointed right at me, the blunt end of a black barrel. And as I approach, I wonder if this is how it ends, or should I stop just short of him or skirt around when he lifts the barrel away from me, and I see it's not me at all he wants to shoot, an owl high in a tree Not caring how close I am, he aims his camera up as I drive by quietly. In front of each house I pass, yellow wands blow me away. Excellent poem. I love that. That was uh, Forsythia Drive-By, and it does fit the prompt very well. Thanks, Carla. 
Oh, thank you so much, Tim. And have a great night. Yeah, you too. Okay, so that was Carla Schwartz, uh, and that was from um, capeandislands.org. And you can listen to this too, Carla, reading it as well. Um, interesting publishing opportunity there that they have. Uh, I like that. Arts and Ideas is what they call this uh, this segment, I guess. Okay, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to wrap up the show um, in the next ten minutes. So I'm gonna try to cruise through a few of these other open mic poems. Um, I mentioned we had a, a Joey Stahl has a haiku. Let me just put this over. I don't want to try to avoid showing people's email addresses. Oops. Um, here, try this again. I don't know if this was written just now or. Um, during the show, but but Joy has a um, a haiku inspired by the prompt, and so here this one is. There we go. Oop. Highway fifty six, endless Kansas high desert, Dollar General. Highway fifty six, endless Kansas high desert, Dollar General. That was Joy Stahl's poem for the prompt. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. Um, wonderful haiku there. And um, let us see who else we can share. Um, this is Vicky Miko. And as always, she has some... I'm not going to play it. I'm just going to read. Let's see. Yeah, I'm just going to read it because it'll be quicker than me setting it up. But this is... Uh, she has photos and a poem here to go with it. So sort of a photo log journey. This is interesting. So let's let's do this really quick too. Um, here we go. This is California Couple Missing last seen traveling east toward the event horizon. We had expected to reach Las Crucis for lunch before noon, too busy talking about the game theory and food chain. We hadn't even noticed the last car we passed was a couple of hours ago. Must have made a wrong turn somewhere. Yeah, should have been closer to White Sands by now. In the distance on our left, we approach what looks like some kind of holding tank, a massive black vasculum jutting from its flattened, empty space. The highway ends, turned back, scrawled on the K-rail. We notice a sudden quiet. It becomes so intense, it starts to hurt our ears, and there's no air. We are numb, something's pulling inside my solar plexus. Did you feel that? Between the blue... And the mountaintops, we rise from our sight line. In the rabid heat, a gassy jet encircles our now powerless bodies. No time or sense to comprehend what's happening. In slow motion, we begin to levitate toward the massive aditum. Our throats make no sound. We try to reach for each other, but we feel nothing. Our eyes are fixed only on the blackest black, radiating from the open doorway. The taste of warm blood fills the back of my throat. I try to scream for you, but nothing comes out. A sudden dizzying over the threshold. Where are you? I can barely hear your broken voice ricocheting against my last bit of air. Wake up, wake up. A fourth dimension, what we don't know in the miles of nothing. We are just specks sucked into the vanishing point. And that was Vicky Miko with a um with a hybun and Haiga. And actually, now I know that was one, one of the questions I didn't get to was Vicky's. And she asked if there was somebody who'd call or if there's somebody who combines haiku and Haiga um, or Haibun 
Haibun is the prose um, with haiku attached, and then haiga are pictures with with haiku attached or included as part of it, and and they sort of talk to each other, and that combined both. So if you're uh, watching later in the podcast, or I mean, listen, if you're listening later in the podcast version, go back and check out the stream to see these photographs by Vicky. And uh, we're gonna do a couple couple more really quick. This is Carlton Johnson near the border. Here's Carlton. I got to get the kids to bed. Unfortunately, it's it's a long. It's a I got a lot of content this show. Here, screen view near the border by Carlton Johnson. By eight a.m., the sun is clearly burning hot. Mad that you even have the gall to be out at this early hour. It is only increasing the heat, unceasing and melting water-like liquid in ruts and rills, and it fills the air with a heavy gasp, scorching your lungs on each inhale. There is a long adobe house there on old county route 405 close to the mexican border you stop and wander around the back in the shade and add some water to the parched ground there is an old wooden door on the back and so you nudge it a bit inside a one-room schoolhouse complete with a desk blackboard chalked with a lesson in the abcs you leave and re-enter the slaving hot sun off to learn a few more lessons of your own that was Carlton Johnson with Near the Border. And um, let me see. As long as this is short, we'll read Ted's too. Yeah, Ted's isn't too long either. So this is Ted Guevara, or Ted Bernal Guevara, with Last Car. And then uh, then we'll do the Saiku when I got to head out. Here's uh, Ted Guevara's Last Car. The pull is equal back here, but life is less rushed. The self still goes forward, but transfixed moves with it. Both, uh, they both find a rhythm. They forget suddenly. The will back here is to be up front, but sigh on rails overwhelms try on rails. Composure doesn't yearn for dignity. Ideals are deleted once gone by. I am sitting quietly. Quintessence sits across the aisle, wanting to eat with me. The tug is between cars. It catches my breath. It catches everyone's breath. The ghost or thinness overtly roams overhead. But quintessence is with me, reads me poetry, describes me the window, sings me a song. So I'll die alone. And that was uh, Ted Guevara's poem. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Um, interesting as always, Last Car by Ted Bernal Guevara. And um, let's see. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to have to wrap it up here with a quick Saiku. And the Saiku this week was based on an article um, from the University of or University of Col- University College London. And this was uh, predicting a riot. Uh, social inequality ex- um, leads to... Hang on a second... Social inequality leads to vandalism and experiments. And so what they did is they had two teams of people play this game called Park Life, in which you try to build a park. Um, you know, you build up your park kind of like a roller coaster tycoon was back when I was a kid. And um, they were competing to build the best park. And in half of the group, they made the, um, the people have an unfair advantage. They just got resources faster so it could make a better park. And through a series of 19 experiments, they fiddled with all these things, with all these participants and found that it was actually um, social inequality that was what was causing um, the uh, the people in the unfair group to 
um, act out and vandalize the uh, their opponents' parks. And it reminded me of the way that graffiti is all over the the hikes that we do here up in uh, the mountains of Southern California, and um, and and the root cause of that, but also that the graffiti is is nothing new to uh, the trees that live on, uh, unfortunately, live on paths that make good date night, <laughs> date night paths. So here is my Saiku really quick. This is uh, Over the Heart, Carved in an Old Oak, New Graffiti. Over the Heart, Carved in an Old Oak, New Graffiti. And that is your uh, Saiku for tonight, just a quick one. And um, to finish off, the uh, prop for next week is going to be this. Here we go. Um, to Autumn by John Keats is one of the most highly regarded poems in the English language. It is richly majestic and descriptive. Write your own ode to autumn. And uh, that's a perfect poem for the fall uh, coming, at least for those in the Northern Hemisphere that are listening right now. Um, So write your own ode to autumn is the prompt for next week. And next week's guest is going to be Marissa Davis. Um, Marissa Davis is in the Appalachian Poets issue that we just published over the summer. Her new chapbook is My Name and Other Languages I'm Learning to Speak. Um, Just a wonderful poet. Really looking forward to that. Rattlecast number 112. That's the regular time, Sunday, October 3rd, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And I hope to see you then with your prop poems and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Looking forward to it. And um, let's see you in the critique of the week and everything else, too. In the meantime, have a good night and uh, talk to you soon. Good night.